I'm Erica Lynn, and we all know the ocean is the most demanding environment on Earth, consistently testing the reliability and durability of our equipment. When you spend as much time fishing as I do, you know that reliable gear is essential for staying on the water. This is why I went with Abyss Battery to power my trolling motor, electronics, and outboard. The guys at Abyss Battery are rattling the saltwater industry by manufacturing performance marine batteries specifically designed for sonar, outboards, trolling motors, and electronic fishing reels. They're also Bluetooth compatible, so I found Checking battery statuses right on your phone while you're out on the water is a huge game changer. To learn more about why Abyss batteries are used by the pros and factory installed by Premier Boat Builders, visit abyssbattery.com. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. You're listening to the Design Build Hunt podcast presented by Whitetail Partners. Here we cover all things whitetail property design, habitat improvement, and hunting strategy. Let's change your property for good. All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to another episode of the Design, Build, Hunt podcast. I've got uh, almost a whole crew here with me tonight. I've got Greg from Ohio, Jake from Michigan, and Lee from Tennessee. We're missing Mr. Sam Billhorn. He is out tonight, but that's all right. We're going to have a good discussion anyway. Guys, welcome to the show. How's it going, Josh? Yep. Hey, Josh. Well, Jake, I think we're, uh, I think we're all doing okay, but I don't think any of us are doing quite as well as you are this evening uh you mentioned in uh, one of our last recording sessions of how you're trying to uh raise the bar for the state of michigan show what's possible for hunters in michigan and man you got it done on a dandy on a heck yeah, of a he year. was a, he was a nice buck uh we uh had an opportunity at a the oldest deer that we were seeing on camera uh, up until this point of the season, and yeah, we were we were getting him pretty consistently uh, since about mid-September. But uh, you now he was uh, always just kind of moving at night, you know, just doing what old bucks do. They're pretty reclusive, and it wasn't until recently that he kind of showed us on our cell cameras that he was going to start moving a little bit earlier uh, in the evening. And so we kind of made a game time decision to push in uh, last Friday, the twentieth, and, and take a chance at him. And fortunately, he did. Uh, again, come out uh, kind of around seven o'clock, and we were able to put a good hit on him, and and yeah, come away with a, a pretty nice deer. I think he was. Uh, I think I, I sent the teeth to a couple guys that I know that are, are pretty good at aging deer. I think he was around four and a half years old. So for for our area, that's a that's a very old deer. So it's yeah. uh it was it was pretty exciting to to take that deer off of our off our family property after all the work we've done on it, and uh, especially having my son there for the recovery. You know, it was a, a pretty special, a pretty special occasion. Right, right, man. That that's incredible. Beautiful, beautiful deer. Folks can go go to your Instagram account and uh, see some pictures of that bad boy. But uh, had is that a deer you've had history with in the past? Or yeah, so it, it's. Uh, it, I don't know where, where he was when he was two years old. Like a, here in Michigan, like we we never even name our bucks just because. Uh, just the same reason you don't we don't name our chickens. Uh, as soon as you name one, it's uh, you know, 
it's gonna die. So right. we uh, yeah, we don't really name our bucks, but we uh, we did have history with this deer. Last year we we saw him uh, as a three year old, and he lost one of his antlers. So mm. there was a pretty good chance that like guys in Michigan they'll shoot anything. You know they'll shoot spikes, they'll shoot four points, but if they see a deer run around with one antler, they're not gonna shoot it for I don't know I don't know why. So they but. I had a pretty good idea that this deer was going to make it. So we, we just kind of watched him and he was on our property a lot last year. And then we had him, uh, throughout January, uh, knew he, knew he survived and then kind of watched him a little bit throughout the summer. Didn't get a whole lot of summer pictures, but we did get him a couple times in August, uh, in, in velvet. So th- those are some pretty cool, uh, pretty cool pictures. And then, uh, a lot in September, a lot in October. So and we had a pretty good idea where that deer was bedded down, pretty good idea where he wanted to go in the evening, just had to remain patient to uh, let the deer tell us when he was going to be huntable. So yeah. I mean, we only hunted, I, that was my fourth sit of the season. So October 20 was my only my fourth time going out, but it was, uh, it was a good one. Yeah, yeah. Man, and it sounds like it was a combination of, number one, letting the deer tell you, but then also a, a little bit of an aggressive move. Like you were kind of, Back and yeah. forth, should I, shouldn't die on that specific day? But there were some right. some things that came together to make you think, yeah, this is probably the day. Right, yeah. He was uh, getting closer and closer to shooting hours, both in the evening and in the morning. But he, you know, he wasn't quite there yet. And last Wednesday, I think I even told you this, Lee, when we were uh, when you called me, that the deer that I was after showed up at seven o'clock, and I was like, you got to be kidding me! It was a really warm day. Uh, the farmer had just cut his bean field and I had, I did not think that that deer was going to come out on that day of all days, but he did. And so not only did he come out at seven, but he also was making a scrape right after that. And he wasn't really making scrapes uh, in, until that point. So what that told me is that he's kind of feeling that pre-rut itch. And so there's a good chance that he's going to start showing up a little bit more consistently during daylight. And we are going to, we're coming up on the, you know, the 19th, 20th of October. That's normally when these deer start to move a little bit more during daylight. And Thursday was supposed to rain all day. Friday was supposed to rain for most of the day and stop around four o'clock. So I knew I had a pretty good opportunity to slip into that spot while it was raining. He's kind of been, you know, but bedded down for the last day and a half, you know, maybe he was going to get up again, during shooting hours and, and hit that same spot. So it was a little bit of a risky move just based on the location. You know, it was going to be kind of all, all or nothing. If I, if he didn't show up, there was going to be a good chance that I was probably going to bust him when I got out of the stand or he was going to know that I was there and he would probably change his pattern. But luckily, uh, fortunately for us, he, he did come out at the same time and uh, yeah, we were able to uh, capitalize on it. So you guys just get one, Archery buck in in Michigan, right, or one buck total? So we can shoot two bucks, but oh, you can shoot two. I, bucks. I normally right. I normally only shoot one, so I like okay. I don't. Now, if there if there's another one out there that 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 shows himself later on, that's you know around that around that age class, then I I would probably shoot a second deer, but you know I I don't I try to uh, limit myself to to one buck. Right. Just, just Keep, because I, I want to continue to build that age class or age structure throughout the neighborhood. And if, if you continue to shoot two bucks every year, it, you're just going to kind of take away from what you have. So, right. Right. Well, man, I got to tell you, you made me think of a new, uh, a new deer management strategy for there in Michigan. If you could just tranquilize all your bucks during the summer and lop one of their antlers off. Uh, right. And that way, that way, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that way folks, maybe let them get through for another year or two. I think you might be doing yep. all right there. 
Yeah, it's it's kind of a blessing when when you see one running around with one antler because it's like okay, you know, it's, they uh they might not take a shot at that one. And, <laughs> and fortunately, that this guy made it, so yeah, he was everywhere. Yeah. So I, I think that a lot of people did see him. Like I, a couple of the neighbors did. They go, ah, saw one with one antler running around, but I didn't want to shoot him. It's like, oh, thank you. <laughs> Perfect. Perfect. Oh man, very good, very good. Well, guys, uh, I don't know what episode number this is, but I do know that it is now time for us to jump into a topic we've kind of been saving, but want to get into foundations of property design. That's our bread and butter, showing up to people's properties, taking into account all of their goals, uh, taking into account the way and style that they like to hunt, taking into account who's hunting on the property, their abilities, uh, what the property gives us, what it doesn't give us, what the surrounding properties give us or don't, uh, and handing over at the end of the of the process a, a fully, um, I guess, established design. It's going to be in the form of a, of a written report. They're going to get a map with the design drawn out on it. They're also going to get personalized videos from us that describe every element of this design. Before we jump into, you know, breaking down specific properties in the next couple of weeks, I wanted to stop and ask you guys, when it comes to property design, let's talk about some of those foundational elements. Like maybe if I, if I, if I, if I push you against the wall and said, all right, you've got to pick one thing that is your thing, one thing that is your foundational element of a property design or one foundational principle or one foundational feature that you're going to be putting in, what is that one thing? So uh, since we kicked it off with Jake's buck story, Jake, I'm going to put you uh, in the hot seat first and uh, get your answer to it. Absolutely. Uh, When I'm looking at a a property, uh, I kind of take the same approach uh, on every single one. And even though every property is going to be laid out a little differently, depending on where the property is located, uh, you're going to look at, I, I try to look at it very similar. And it, it's kind of what I'm trying to accomplish on that property. And to me, that's you're trying to create a pattern. You're trying to create uh, a, a bedding pattern. You're trying to create a, the, the, the food source to, to pull those deer out of the bedding area to the, to the food source in the afternoon. You know, you're, you're trying to create predictability on the property because right now, you know, you know most properties are, are going to have deer movement. They're going to have deer on that property with or without a habitat design you know long before habitat design deer were on properties and and hunters saw deer however that movement on the properties is is most likely random and which makes hunting those deer much more difficult so to me the the foundation of a a habitat plan you know in in my eyes is to create that predictability You, you you're trying to create the uh the consistent movement on that property whether that's the doe movement, the buck movement, you know, you, you want to make sure that you have a good idea as to what these deer are doing on your property and when. And once you have that established, that makes everything else much easier. You can access the property that much easier. You can hunt the property that much easier because you you know where these deer are likely going to be. If, if you have your property set up and you have predictable movement, in the morning, you have a pretty good idea where those deer are going to be. And so then you can set up accordingly. And to, on the flip side, you know, you know where those deer are going to be going in the afternoon. And so then you can hunt that area of your property. So, uh, again, to me, the, the, the foundation or what I'm trying to accomplish with, with every habitat design is creating that 
predictable movement uh, so that we can hunt the property more effectively. Gotcha. What is, in, in your experience, in your specific region, what's mm-hmm. maybe the one thing that contributes most to that predictability piece? Oh, man. So that's going to depend a little bit on the area, like like what the neighborhood looks like a little bit. But the I would say here in Michigan, like there's two big ones, right? Uh, I would say like what's going to create that predict- like predictable movement, like uh, the pattern, food or cover. That's kind of like what what's more important, food or cover. Here in Michigan, I think the most important is cover, high quality cover. And especially if you're trying to target older age class deer, if you don't have high quality cover on your property, there's a good chance that that deer is not going to be living on your property or, or close to it. And if he's not on your property, it's going to be that much harder to get a chance at him because these deer don't move very far during daylight for, for most of the season. So if you don't have that high quality cover, you know, you're, uh, you, you and your neighbors do, you, they kind of have a little bit of the advantage. So to me, if I had to pick one of the, one of the ends of the movement pattern, it would be the, it would be the, the best cover in the neighborhood. Uh, you know, but that, that, that's not to short change food because that's very important too. foods like the carrot that gets them to move. You know, if you want that, tell that that's going to tell them which direction they're going to go, which, where are they going to head in the afternoon? So food's very important too. But if I had to pick one, and you're going to say you, you could only pick one, it would be security cover. Yeah, man, that, that's really, really good. And one of the things that I have found is that, um, you know, for a lot of properties that you go to, there's an assumption that just because a, a property has thick spots or thick places or hard to access places, that it's high quality cover. Um, and that is not, not at all the case. Uh, there are a lot of things that go into high quality cover that aren't just, hey, it's thick and nasty and people don't go in there. Like there's a lot more, uh, a lot more that goes into that. So I just wrote that down as a future podcast topic. Like what is, what does it look like? What does it take to have the best cover in the neighborhood? But we don't have time for that today. We've got to move yeah, on to somebody that goes else. Into that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I, I'm just thinking about um, a specific property that I was on um, th- just this past year, full of mountain laurel, full of rhododendron and full of um, American holly, you know, on these, on these ridge sides. And I'm, I start talking with the landowner about uh, incorporating some, um, incorporating some bedding cover in some of these locations. And it's like, what well, we don't need bedding. Look how thick it is. Why would you, why would you put bedding cover in there? It's like, cause that's trash cover. I mean, it's not, it's thick. Yeah. And the deer bed in it. Absolutely. But if you give them something else, they're going to, they're going to bed somewhere else. You know, they're going to, they're going to use, cover that provides a few more things than, you know, American holly or rhododendron or, you know, mountain laurel or something like that. So, uh, Lee, man, let's jump down to you, Mr. Lee from Tennessee. And first of all, we've got to introduce Lee from Tennessee. So Lee missed last time. I heard there was a beach involved or, yeah, or something like that. It was fall that. break. So we had, uh, we had a little beach vacation. So did not want to miss the podcast. I just, you know, I, I felt like I'd get in trouble with the wife I, if I took work down there. So, oh, I, I, don't uh, I, hate, I hate I missed the first few episodes. That's all right, man. That's all right. I did the same exact thing last week. Our kids had fall break. We went down to uh, Gulf Shores, Alabama, spent a couple days uh, camping out and having fun. And it, it was really weird, man. I'm looking at pictures of big bucks on Instagram. Yeah. As my kids splashing the waves, you know, yep. out, out in the Gulf. And it's like, man, this is just, I feel like I'm living in two different worlds right now. Yep. Um, you know, with the beach action going on, but Lee is our guy, Whitetail Partners, Tennessee. 
Uh, Lee, same question for you, though. When it comes to foundations of property design, what's going to be the one thing that is uh, where you're going to focus? Yeah, and that's, that's a really good question. And so I'll just start where I always start a plan. And that it's usually done, you know, not with that client. Usually they'll send us, you know, the uh, drop a pin on the parcel. They'll show us the parcel. And, you know, a lot of this work, uh, one of the first things I do is is without the client, I will take and, and look at that parcel. And what I like doing is just zooming way out, you know, zooming out, looking at the neighbors. What is the what does the territory look like? And that way I can start creating a distinct value. What does this property's DNA create or have the, the opportunity to create a distinct value versus the neighbors? Um, I think that's got to be step one. And you can tell a whole lot about a property's DNA, um, just whether it's, you know, they may have an advantage on just a main hub system. You know, they may have really, really good topography that offers bedding. They may have uh, you know, the majority of the food that may have ag fields. Um, but every property has strengths and weaknesses based on the seasonal pattern shifts of a deer. So I start and try to figure out what does this property, what are its strengths in these seasonal pattern shifts? And I start, you know, getting a game plan together of how I want to put that property's habitat plan together based on its strengths and weaknesses for um, you know, those seasonal pattern shifts. And you can do that, uh, you know, pretty easily just by zooming out, just taking your time, looking at the neighbors, studying the topography. Um, and it's, it's really good. And it really tees up really strong conversations when you go in there with your client and you show him the strengths of his property and how that, how he can effectively approach it. That's a really, really strong thing to do. And and the clients love it. So, Yeah, that's That's really that's one of the first things I look at. That's really good. Lee, I I know you, um, man, I feel like you've been all over the place. You've done properties in in a lot of different places. But just speaking for you locally, you know, kind of where you're at, what what is what what's maybe the thing that's missing on a lot of these properties? Like when you do zoom out, what's the thing that you see as like a common occurrence of like, man, this property, if we just if we add this, it's not in the neighborhood and this is going to be a deer vacuum. Well, so where I live, um, I'm, I'm in West Tennessee, bluff country. We've got tons of topography. We got, we're blessed with topography. I love hunting big bucks and topography. Uh, you can, I can tell in, in five seconds, pulling up a map, you know, where they should be betting, where they should be traveling. Um, you know, I would say some of this big timber, uh, country it's food. Uh, you know, definitely when you get kind of towards central Tennessee, uh, where you kind of lose big ag country, uh, it's usually food. You know, you you right. start getting the really, really big woods uh, and you've got just, you know, you've got a ton of hardwoods and that's it. And you've got some killer, you know, uh, topography. You've got some killer hub systems that you can get on, but it's a flash in the pan as far as nutrition goes for the deer. Uh, West Tennessee is different. You know, you have a lot of ag fields in West Tennessee. It's by the Mississippi River naturally. Uh, so it's a little bit different, but I'd say a lot of my clients are definitely food deficient. We don't have the proper tonnage, uh, that we need. And that's usually you can get it. Sometimes you gotta get really creative and every property's DNA is so different. Like the soil types 
just very wildly, you know, and you've got to try to figure out uh, how you can accommodate that, you know, property to give it that distinct value. Uh, sometimes it's, uh, it comes in other ways, uh, but that's what you've got to figure out to, to, you know, to Im- be an importer and a holder of, of a mature buck in, in Tennessee, you know, very high pressure area. Uh, we've got a three month consecutive rifle season, um, which, you know, not wanting to get, in, I know that's not part of the segment, but I used to think of that as a con, but it really is a pro, um, mm. because, you can do a lot of things to your property to, to have that distinct value, knowing that there's a lot of pressure around you for a very long time. Um, the, right. That's the fundamentals of approaching your property is so important in states like Tennessee. Right. But they make right. a big difference. Yeah, for sure. Lee, I want to follow up on, on two things. Number one, you know, I'm here in Georgia and I see that food piece a lot too. And again, it's kind of like the cover. Uh, there's a lot of assumptions. Hey, there's a lot of green stuff out there. Therefore, there's high quality food everywhere. Um, and one that's, that's not the case. There's just a lot of stuff out there that is not going to be a selected food source. Uh, and number two, kind of like you alluded to, you know, to create that pattern ability, like Jake is talking about, we need a consistent food source. Mm-hmm. I need a food source that lasts more than seven days. Mm-hmm. You know, that white Oak starts dropping and that pattern holds for yeah. four or five days until the acorns are gone. Yeah. That doesn't do me a lot of good when I'm trying to pattern big bucks on my property that I'm trying to keep the pressure limited. Um, sure. Second thing I wanted to touch on real quick, you know, we've, we've got long rifle season here in, uh, in Georgia as well. Obviously Alabama's got a really long gun season, a lot of Southern States, very long and liberal gun seasons and um, you know, harvest quotas. Um, when it comes to thinking about gun pressure though, when it comes to setting up a property, I heard a guy talking the other day and he, he indicated that, you know, he likes designing properties for gun hunting in some of these states with a longer gun season because mm-hmm. he can really keep the pressure off of his property. Yes. He said, he said, have you ever thought about what it does to have a guy trying to sneak within 25 yards of a trail every single time he goes in? He's like, just sit back 100 yards and shoot the deer when he crosses this. I'm like, I never thought about it because I've always associated, you know, guns go bang, right? Bows don't. So I always thought lower pressure. And he's like, no, no, I think it's the opposite. What do you think? I think he's totally right. Um, now, like I said, I used to, I used to really get irritated by the deer stands on my property line, you know, that, that are just riddled all over the property line. They actually cut shooting lanes over onto Mm. my property line, but there's also trash thrown there. You know, there's a, there's a significant amount of intrusion and I, and I have faith that they're not approaching that, uh, appropriately. And, what I have seen, these deer are survivors. And when you have that much intrusion, um, it, it, like to your point, rifle versus bow, I think rifle, uh, that's, that's kind of a loaded question. I mean, and, and it's a lot of variables with that question, but for sure, you're, you're, you're a lot of the stands in Tennessee, you see them and they're in the middle of a field and they're, they're shooting 250, 300 yards away versus a, a bow situation. Uh, you're, you're more liable to intrude on the core of your property into your sanctuary, uh, which is a no, no, you know, that's, I I have, you know, we all, uh, value that sanctuary integrity. You know, we want 80 plus percent, you know, type sanctuary integrity on every property and rifle. Obviously, if you have a rifle hunter, it's easier to achieve that. It's easier to train that cust that client to, to not intrude on, on this area. 
although that's where all the sign is. You want to go there. Everything in, in your body wants to go where all that sign is. But that sign is there because it is a sanctuary. It's safe. If you go there and you intrude in the core of your property, you're going to start exporting deer off of your property. Right. Um, unless you have, you know, if, if you're blessed with larger properties, you know, you, you may be able to, to pressure a little bit more. But I, most of most average hunters, including myself, you know, if, if you approach it wrong, you're going to export your, your deer and it's, it's going to get them in trouble. It's going to get them killed. Right. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Greg, man, let's let's make our way around to you. You know, foundational element of property design that's kind of uh, your your one thing. Yeah, I would say uh, I can kind of dive into once we make it on the property, what that foundation is. We kind of have like that overhead look now and kind of, you know, uh, trying to create that predictability. Um, I feel like you can do that by utilizing the natural deer flow through the landscape. Um, I feel like, especially here, I see it a lot in Ohio. There's just ways that deer want to use the land. Uh, you know, when you're dealing with that very steep terrain, especially there are certain land features, kind of like what Lee mentioned, where things just really stick out when you look at maps all the time and you put boots on the ground and you just see how deer want to use the land. And you can really utilize that natural deer flow to piece together the puzzle of how you can create like a system in your property rather than deer working through it. And I feel like once you have that travel figured out, at that point, you can really start to stack everything else on the property of how can I make this stronger and stronger. It's not always that one size fits all, um, you know, like bedding area here, food here, whatever it may be. But I feel like when I can get that travel locked in and I can have a really good sense of, is this going to be just primary deer travel or does this really make sense for this to be a spot that a buck can work his way through my property and get a whole lot of scent collection on one single trail? And by doing that, I feel like it gives a very good leg up and it just makes the setups a lot easier. It makes these high quality setups and low intrusion in low intrusion areas uh, more plausible just because if you know where the deer want to go you build the plan around it then it just kind of really all flows together that's typically what i see uh, especially down here in ohio yeah let that that brings up a question for me and i think it relates to all three of you so i'll just let whoever wants to jump in on this one jump in um you know obviously what the deer already want to do is is one of the things that we're taking into consideration Another thing we're taking into consideration, though, is how we can access, where we can access, and sometimes we need to change what the deer are going to do. We need to provide new options. We need to take away options that they were working with. Um, you know, one of the one of the things we get a lot when we're, or that I've gotten a lot when working through a plan with somebody is, uh, well, you know, you know, you've got this stand here. The deer have done this. I've seen deer do this in the past, and it's like, yep, not anymore. We're, you know, we're going to, we're going to give them a better way. We're going to give them a better option. It's like, well, uh, I've seen deer come from over there. It's like, great. Let's get a mulcher in here and cut all of it down, you know, get, get, get all of that out of here. Um, how do you guys walk that balance though, between, you know, what the deer have historically done and what they want to do versus sometimes what we need them to do to get them more predictable? I think that, um, the big thing is, is 
if you have a general idea, so say like, just for example, I'm taking apart a 40 acre piece of property and I can go through and I can dissect that 40 acres, you know, in a couple of hours and have a good idea of where every natural deer travel route is on that property. And from there, I can kind of take a step back and say, okay, which of these would be a plus to the plan and which of these don't really line up with what we're trying to do here. And obviously it's different based off of the landowner. If somebody just wants a general improvement of the property, it's a lot simpler to kind of piece that together. But I work with a lot of guys in Ohio that, you know, their main goal is to get these top tier bucks in their local area. And in order to do that, I feel like that's where you have to give like this plus minus structure to that natural deer travel. And that's where if it's like, if it is that minus, like let's find a way to make that as unappealing as possible and make the plus patterns even more appealing. And eventually the natural tendency is just going to take over and just going to keep doubling down on those plus travel patterns. All right. Very good. Jake, were you going to add on to that? Yeah. Um, I was going to, yeah, say something similar to what, what, what Greg was saying there is there's going to be a lot of trails on the property and there's going to be some that make sense to incorporate into the habitat plan and, and some that don't. And so you can always, uh, like Greg said, discourage some trails or, or, or completely block them like you, what you said uh, to try to hopefully get those deer to only use the trails that you want them to. And if for some reason the deer are currently not doing uh, what we want them to, like the, the current pattern is, is not ideal for the, the hunting situation, then one thing that we can do a lot of times to pull the deer in a certain direction is, is use food to do that, especially on these smaller properties. If you have you know 20 acres and, and you put a food source on one side of that property, well, now you're going to start pulling deer from the other side to that food source. And so that's what I've had to do uh, on several designs in several of my own properties on, on, when they're smaller like that is if I have hunting pressure on one side of the property and I want to pull those deer away from that hunting pressure, I'm going to put food on the opposite side of that. So my pattern, I'm still going to have that bed to feed pattern, but I'm going to pull them in the opposite direction. Now, are they ever, every once in a while going to go that way? Sure. I mean, deer are deer, but what we're trying to do is keep them on our property as long as we can to hopefully at least during daylight, you know, if they go over there at night, who cares, but we're trying to keep them on our property as long as we can to either in, increase the hunt, huntability of the property, but also increase the survival rate of these younger bucks. That's another big key here in Michigan is we just need, we just need these bucks to get older. And so you just got to keep them on your property for as long as possible. Yeah. That, that brings what you just mentioned brings to mind uh, a design element that we just implemented. Uh, gosh, I guess it would have been back in March or April. Um, we knew on this one property boundary, we were getting a lot of pressure and this individual was kill, actually killing quite a few deer. You know, baiting is legal here in Georgia. Uh, as soon as the deer would cross that property line to the bait pile, they were getting shot. A lot of young bucks going missing up in that portion of the property. So we, while we, it took a lot of time, but we ended up um, creating barriers and new trails and travel corridors to weave them away from that property line and then we put a nice chunk of food right there in the middle to sort of anchor that movement and give them an alternative route. And it has absolutely worked wonders. Now, gun season is, is just getting going here, so we'll see what the, what the end result will be. But 
we're seeing a lot of young bucks on camera and they're not disappearing. So uh, I think I think there are some some good things ahead. But uh, Lee, I wanted to get to you on this front because you recently did something on your property. We made a video about it on the Whitetail Partners YouTube channel, actually. Yeah. That super interesting. So tell me about your scenario. Well, that was the access video. I do want to uh, just make a quick comment on travel manipulation and issues like you were talking about with your neighbor. Uh, just you know, food source right there. I love, you know, if, if you have a situation where you have a lot of intrusion on a property line, you know, food, feed, you know, right across the property line, uh, and you've, and you've got a place on your property that's really hot, but you normally could not, uh, access that in a normal situation. I love when I know that I have intrusion from a neighbor that I can't control. That's always free access to, for you on your property. Does that make sense? Right. You can use right. that access and it, and that intrusion from you degrades the value of that area as well uh, on top of barriers. So that's a, that's a, if, if it allows, I will sometimes, you know, create access that I know is if I have somebody on the property line, I, I will do that to, to devalue that area, but then right. gain access to a better part of my property. Right. And you know, you're, as I'm pushing deer to my core. Right. And you're making the assumption with that too, that, you know, that, that area is already getting the pressure. It is. So why, yes. why not, why not you be the one in there applying some of that pressure as well? Exactly. Exactly. It, it, well, exactly. Uh, so no, but back to the, uh, to the access. So another thing, you know, there's barriers, there's travel manipulation, there's, you know, you can encourage, but food, water, uh, one thing that, you know, access is in and out. That's what we preach. You've got to get in and out. Uh, if you're, if, if your goal is to consistently, you know, harvest mature bucks, if you want to be an importer, a holder, a grower of mature bucks, you've got to really pay attention to your access in and out. And this particular stand, uh, that I have is on my personal property. It's an observation stand. It's over a food plot. It's really good for taking kids. Um, you see a lot of deer, but I don't hunt my food sources very often. It's usually just when I want to take a kid to see a lot of deer. But I will hunt those, you know, late season food sources. Uh, this is a whole nother topic, you know, for that roamer type buck or or your resident bucks that are coming and trying to rebuild late season's killer on those food plots. But this particular instance, this stand, I had a killer, this bedding area between my access route to that stand. And it was an old uh, logging, you know, they, they, they logged this little valley. And those skitters, when you have highly erosive soils, they make those little berms to slow uh, the erosion down. Well, it was a south-facing slope, and it had these little unnatural berms all through there and all this regenerative growth, you know, all around those berms. It was a perfect bedding area. And, boy, they <laughs> sucked in there, and it made it literally impossible to walk to that stand. Right. So I destroyed it, you know. And, and we do destroy a lot of you know, sometimes some habitat that's in the way that's not advantageous to that client. Sometimes you just have to get rid of it, you know, to, to enhance that area. So that, that was, and it's a lot of fun doing that too. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. And that's, you know, one of the things that I, I do just want to point out, um, you know, conversations with folks is like, well, what, you know, there's a, there's a state biologist who's going to, who's going to come out here to my property. Um, what do you guys do that's different than what the state biologist is going to tell me? And it's like, well, the state biologist, his number one priority is, is your, your habitat period. And he would never tell you to remove an area of high quality habitat so that you can access and hunt better unless he's, you know, 
obviously a very dedicated hunter or something like that. We are going to be on the opposite end. We're going to be looking at, okay, we're, we're hunters primarily. Do we care about the habitat? Absolutely. We care about the habitat. We're going to, we're not just going to destroy it and not give them something else. We're going to give the deer something else. We're going to create bedding possibilities in other locations. Um, but yeah, sometimes, sometimes you just got to break out a chainsaw and bring in a, bring in a skitter or bring in, what was that that you had? The, um, forestry mulcher, huh? Yeah, it, it was, uh, we got, uh, access to forestry mulcher and this was more of like a, a brush cutter on that one. Uh, and then a track hoe, you know, we had some pretty large pecans in there, uh, and it was rotten. I would have left the pecan, but, uh, so yeah, we just, we just got rid of all of it. Man, it yeah. looked it looked like a lot of fun. That it, it really was. It had me researching prices of some of those uh, forestry mulchers because I was like, man, I could yeah. get one of those. I could I could handle oh. one of those. And then I saw it was like a smooth hundred and thirty grand to really get into anything. So I was like, nah, never mind. <laughs> I'm good. I'm good. Uh, man, and I, I promise you, accessing that stand, you know, uh, two years ago, I had the biggest buck of my life that I did end up harvesting, but he was in this area and there was just a single doe that was in there every morning. And as soon as I got out and as soon as I started walking, she would blow and run right back in to where he, his core was. Oh, I just man. went back home, you know, I just, and it, and you have to, you have to manipulate some of those things, you know, to, to your advantage. Right. So sometimes it's not, you know, some things we want to do. And sometimes that can get a little pricey, you yeah. know, to, but sometimes it's not, it's pretty cheap. So, right. Right. That was pretty extreme. Well, and you can and you can accomplish just about anything with a bunch of sweat equity. Like it can be pricey exactly. to get somebody in there, but with a chainsaw and some hand tools, you can accomplish just about anything that you want to if yep. you're if you're committed <laughs> committed enough cuz sometimes it can take quite a bit of labor, but uh, folks, thank you so much for joining me for this conversation. This was awesome. Really appreciate talking about the foundations of of habitat and property design. Guys, if you want to learn more, you can head over to our website, whitetailpartners.com. You can find us on YouTube, Whitetail Partners, and check out Lee and uh, some folks that he knows destroying an awesome bedding area and uh, get the get the lowdown on that. But, guys, thanks for the conversation tonight. Thanks for listening to this week's show. If you found this helpful, do us a favor and leave us a review wherever it is that you get your podcasts. And if you want to keep up with us, you can find us on Instagram at whitetail underscore partners, on Facebook, Whitetail Partners LLC, on YouTube by simply searching Whitetail Partners, or online at whitetailpartners.com.